Well, welcome to Pints and Politics. We explore all things political with a focus on life in Peterborough, in Ontario, and in Canada. Since March of last year, this program has been online, and the discussion to which you're about to listen to was recorded January 15th, 2021. Joining me for this online discussion is Steve Guthrie. Uh, Steve has just retired from a long career in local media. So thank you so much, Steve, for making time to do this. As this recording will be posted as a podcast, there will be listeners out there who don't have any idea who you are or who are also unfamiliar with Peterborough. So could you give us a brief a thumbnail sketch of uh, who you are and what you've been doing during your career? Okay, I moved here in uh, 1978. 79, 79, right. long time. Uh, <laughs> to take a job at Jack Television. I was hired, the position that was hired for was for commercial photographer and set design. Because in those days, a TV, your typical television commercial across all small stations across the country was basically a set of four or five slides and a voiceover. Uh, mm. For example, every week around there. Burt Jones, Pontiac Buick, and Madoc, and Bruce Anderson would voice the commercial. Burt Jones beats them all, and then they go into the, the specials of the week. So I did right. that, and the set design was, was more, actually more construction than design. We had to make uh, backdrops. I built a, a weather board, which was uh, the original board. Where there's three boards with, like, local, national, and then forecast. And they found that it was just too hard. These things are, like, maybe four feet square. And the, and the weather person had to move, and it was hard to keep him lit properly. So they built, they built, that's, that's it, the, the frame here, and the weatherboard right behind me is a pivot, like an axle. And so the board would turn. So the, you could have the weather guy stand where I'm standing, talk about the weather, and then turn the board and the next pivot. And so that was the first thing I built. Now, I, I came from a construction background, so this thing okay. was built not to set standards, so it weighed uh, like a ton, which is much too heavy, but it wasn't going to go anywhere. So I would do things like that, and then they went to videotape, and uh, a longtime employee of the company, who has been a uh, producer, wanted to start doing the video, which is fine. And so he started doing the commercials on video. I was then moved into um, Master Control, which was a control which Wesley saw on Chat Television at the time, which was a, a terrible job for me because it was um, one of those jobs where there's no – Positive reinforcement, but all kinds of negative reinforcement, right? Grew up, everybody ceased. So I didn't like that very much. Right. At that point, I went to uh, another dual department, which was film editing and shipping. All our shows came in on, came in, we get them from Barry, we'd show them, and then we'd send them off to Ottawa, for example. A lot of them were on film. And being an American program, for example, like Knott's Landing, uh, was on film. And American programs allowed for 11 minutes of commercials, and Canadians could have, have 12. So I had to cut a minute out of each show and then right. show it and put the back in and send it off to the next person. And, and when you say, if I can ask you, when you say the, the shows came in, you, you got cases of film, right? Film. And, uh, and the other popular format was was called um, two-inch quad. And the tapes were on these massive reels like this. And it was two inches wide. <laughs> it had to read the tape. That's what it's called, the quad machine. And right. so... 
we get the um, usually through a, a courier would come with a, a van load of this stuff. They pick it out, sort it out, realize where it's going to go. We show it, then it goes back in the van, it goes on to the next guy. That was actually called a bike. We were on a, we were on a bike with, like I said, uh, Barrie, North Bay, Ottawa, Kingston. There's a, there's, a, there's a cycling between the two. And I did that for a while, and then I was also helping out occasionally by um, shooting video. Uh, for news, because I had done that in college. And then one, one day when they decided that the uh, news, that we didn't do any more film, and a lot of the programs were coming in by a satellite as would be physically transported across the country, he said, why don't you go into uh, news and shoot news, which I had never thought of doing. Um, but I'll give, it, I'll give it a whirl. And that will last for about a year, not a year, sorry, over 10 years. And then the decision was made to go with videographers. That is, the person shoots both shoots the video and asks the questions and edits the thing before it goes there. And so that came in. I wasn't too sure about that, but they offered to train me in it. And an old friend of mine who's in the business forever said, well, would you rather they didn't offer to train you? I said, yeah, okay, fine. And I've been doing that for the last, last 30 years. Wow. So when you started the job that you've just retired from, you were shooting videotape. Yes, we, we never editing videotape. Videotape, yes, it was the original video was shot on Sony three quarter inch tape. Called, oh. It was called It was one of their uh, standards. Right. So you had a camera and a cable and a massive big recorder that you tape had to carry tape. around. As time as time went on, the recorders got smaller. But at that at, at, at that point, they went to switch to Betacam, and the Betacam cameras were were one piece. The the, the camera and the recorder were docked together, which was a huge difference for all kinds of reasons. It was a lot easier to get around if you're in a crowded room. Everything was up here. There wasn't a piece here and then this massive 30 pounds of thing hanging off your shoulder. It made mobility much better. At that point, when Betacam went out, we went to digital videotape, DD tape, which again was much smaller than a beta, beta tape. And then we went to, at one point, we went to using cameras using SD cards, but the SD cards are just not meant for everyday use. It was too, uh, physically too flimsy. Right. So we went back to another uh, Panasonic product that uses uh, uh, video cards. So that's what we're using on now. And then we now edit on our, our, work, our workstation at work. You, you, in, you sort of download the video and you edit it right on your Yes, it's, it's so interesting. I, I wonder how many years it will take for expressions like, oh, I'm going to tape a show now to go away, because, of course, no one tapes anymore. We record digital video audio files. Yeah, so interesting. You know, even 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 further back, people refer to, you know, what did you film today? Well, I haven't filmed yeah. anything in years. But- <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. What we what we try to tell people is uh, you're recording. You're recording it. The actual format is that what you're recording. It. You're not filming it. You're actually taping it either. So it's just it's one of those things that it's a change in yeah. in uh, language, but it's it's not a you know do or die thing. No one's going to get very upset. For sure, for sure. Now about beginning journalists, people who are just starting their career these days, uh, what do they need, whether they're employees or independents, professionals or amateurs, what do they need to be aware of in pursuing the profession that you've been in, in a town like Peterborough? Like, are there small town dynamics at play here that journalists, for example, in Toronto don't have to deal with? Or are there advantages of working in a relatively small market like Peterborough? There are, they're both, okay? For example, the advantage in a small town is that if you're here long enough, you get to know a lot of people. 
fool knows somebody else. So you can say, oh, I hear this is happening, and someone will say, well, call my cousin. He does that sort of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the major markets, because you're not, you're not that connected to the population. Now, the downside of that is if you end up doing a story that puts somebody in a negative light, the big markets, you'll never hear about it. The small markets, you know, literally, you're at the supermarket, and the clerk says, I didn't like what you said about my cousin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, the thing about um, the major markets is uh, it's, uh, some things are very much the same. It takes forever sometimes to get a hold of somebody you want to talk to. Just getting around major city like Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver, you know, sure. to drive where you got to go is a big deal. Uh, yes. this, is why, this is why using uh, digital uploads, you know, you get your story, you put it on your laptop, and you upload it. You have to go back to the station, which you always had to do. Right. Now, in, in previous times when people were shooting film, and I came in just at the – just, that had just passed. Uh, Czech television was one of the last sort of, you know, holdouts film. And then we switched over immediately into, uh, into video. I would film about, before we do this about what year? About what year was that? That was, I think, 74, 75, something like that. Oh, that yeah. Room, but right. you go and you shoot your, your news story, and you have to come back and uh, process the film and dry the film. And then get yes. it on the air. So yes. there was there was another sort of thing that no longer is part of the process. That that dead time out yeah. of the process of the film is only part of it. So what differences do the various types of media, be they print, radio, TV, and of course now the online world, what do they impose on practicing journalists in Peterborough? Like you and I can remember pre-TV area. Maybe that's only me. Anyway. But nevertheless, media life was a lot simpler back then, as you just described. I mean, news the news was spread between radio and print. Plus, of course, there were the newsreels in movie theaters. I don't know if you remember those. But that was it. And now we live in a media world that uh, there's almost infinite choice. How has that progression changed the role of local journalists? I mean, how did it change your, your, your work? Well, in, in a couple of ways. There's always a conflict, if I call it that, between the radio and TV world and the print world, in that the print people had a deadline. Okay, right. uh, we need to get this. We need to get this at this time so we can get it, get the paper shut up and printed. Right. And we didn't have that issue, so we're always saying, "Oh, they have this deadline." So there, sometimes they would get an advantage; they'd get something early because they had to go and get it in the paper. They'd get it released before we would. And now, of course, with uh, social media, as soon as you hear it, it's on social media. And every every media outlet uses social media now. It's just you can't exist without it. So it's yep. whether it's Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or any number or whatever the next thing is coming down the pike at it. So, and with that, it's not just the major uh, media outlets that have access to social media. It's anybody, anybody right. that wants to to tell a story, tell their story, right. has access to it. I just wish when they're when they're shooting, you know, that they hold the camera. Don't don't hold it like that. Hold it like that. Right? <laughs> home, hang on the wall like that. No, it hangs on the wall like this. So do it horizontally. Now, having captured the image, that's one thing. Okay. And there's so much more stuff out there than before. In the old days, the old days with uh, major media, you'd be the ones there on the scene to get the pictures. And now, anybody with a camera can get the pictures. The difference is is the context. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's not just posting stuff and saying. You know, look what happened. We have to offer expression as to what happened and what you think you're seeing. What are we seeing? What are we not seeing? So we've got to put that context in there. Just to throw this up there doesn't do any good to anybody, you know, in that you can see the screen as, as you walk by, you can see the same 
situation. But no, it, it's got to be. This is when you come into and do that whole thing. What what sources do you trust on the um, on especially online? Because the the big thing, one of the big things, always was the sense that you had to get the news out first. Okay, and the important thing now, or always was, it's better to be right than to be first. You got a choice. Because look, for example, the video that's popping around online now about the fellow at the airport who's literally weeping because he got kicked off. Yes. He went out was the fact that he was identified as being one of the guys involved in the situation in Washington. Yeah. He was not, but it wasn't. He refused, to, he refused to wear a mask and was thrown off the plane. Right. That's what got him. But the story is out there that this guy did this. Because once once stuff takes off, it's awful hard to get it out, get it back. That's what oh, yeah. Even if you give, you know, go out there and say, okay, this is this is actually what happened. Given the state of today's world, uh, people are saying, oh, well, you know, of course they're going to say that. They're the government. Of course they're, they're in the pockets of, of big business. They're going to agree with that. Well, yeah. at some point, you got to sort of filter out and decipher what, you know, what you need to know, what you want to know, what sources you trust. Oh, exactly. Now, if you were given the chance to coach, teach students who are studying journalism with a view to equipping them with the skills and the knowledge and the attitudes they'd they need to be successful in jobs in small markets like Peterborough. What topics would you be sure to cover? What would you make sure they could do before they started trying to get into the job market and land some work? Technicalities, like you know, how to work this thing. Okay, anybody could, and most people will have that some of that skill anyway. What you need to teach is attitude. Okay, and if you're going to get into the into the business, you've got to you know because people have said to me on really busy days, how do you handle the stress? And it's not a question of handling the stress. You have to embrace the stress. You've got to be there for that. Once every six months, you get one of these stories that just lights your fire, and that's what you have to do. So you got to have that, okay? Right. And just some odd stuff, salesmanship. You've got to set, if you're going to do a story and you're contacting someone as a source, you've got to sell that story to them. You've got to sort of make them want to do the story. Tenacity. The ability to be told no continually, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, a resistance to that. Because nine times out of ten people tell you no, you can't do that. So you've got to develop ways of, you know, of dealing with that and working around that. Both, it's one of those weird things, patience. You're right. Patient. Sometimes you just simply don't get what you want when you need it. At the same time, the ability to suddenly, when you get that patience, get that thing is to switch. Yeah. Go click, time to go. But so often, it's, and it's just a question of waiting around, you know, waiting for phone calls back, waiting for emails back, waiting for something to start to start working on the story. Patience is very important. Well, thanks for that. So when you look at the attributes of people who are successful local journalists, and of course, uh, you know, you, you'd be in that rank, regardless of which media they're working in, uh, what are the attributes of people who work in these jobs? I mean, you're clearly interested in people. You're a great listener, and you're curious by nature, and you fully understand, of course, the the sound and the film media you work with. So, what else is required? Like, like you said, you have to be curious about everything. This is what we tell when people come and say, "Oh, um, I'd love to do this, but I haven't got a, like a degree, a diploma in radio and TV." Well, anymore these days, you need that. You need some sort of piece of paper that says you've done this. Outside of that, if you go through any newsroom in the country, I'll defy you to find any sort of post-secondary degree 
of any of, of, of any any size of them. History people, English people, like uh, philosophy, science, anything. Because during the day, you could be assigned to a story on an infinite number of topics. Right. Any, any background you have on anything will make a difference. It'll give you that that edge when you're reporting that that people get that oh this person does know something about this. So any any life experience you've had, any education you've had, it's all very useful. So are, Steve, are you saying that the journalism degrees aren't as important as just any general degree that gives you some background? Um, that was up the case really up to ten years ago. Now you need that degree. You need, and I know people that get both. They will go to a university like Carleton or Trent, for example, to get a degree in journalism, and then we'll go to a community college and get the, the hands-on technical stuff. So the journalism degree helps these days? It helps these days. It's, it's just the thing that's expected that you have one. Now, in the online world and community media outlets like Trent Radio, we're free to cover whatever we wish. As long as we don't commit libel, we have free range. Uh, for most of your career, you've been an employee of various media organizations. Has your status as an employee restricted you in what you decide to cover or how you cover it? I guess, I mean, ha- have there been times when you said to yourself, if I were a freelancer, I'd do such and such, but I can't because I need this job? No. There are a couple of occasions very sort of minor ones, the, the two that come to, I've never been told by head office, we're not doing this story because we don't care for this, you know, we, we don't agree with that person's politics uh-huh. in the broadest. That does never, that, in my recollection, that's never happened. What has wow. happened on the hyper, the hyper local level is that I went to a car accident and one of the vehicles involved was owned by an advertiser. And I was asked, you know, don't show the truck. I said, the truck's on top of the car. How can that be? But they said, no, no. They, they told us, and they said, they'll, if we show that, they'll, they'll, um, uh, they'll drop the advertising. So I spit and fumed and sputtered. And a, uh, a friend of mine who was assigned me there at the time took me aside and said, it's not that important. Don't worry about it. It's going to happen. But yeah. other than that, it's, it's, and, and the other, the other thing is, again, in a local, on a local, uh, hyperlocal basis, uh, it's very important to recognize that if it wasn't for advertising, we wouldn't be on the air, right? Yes. You gotta, gotta have the ads. And so we work alongside our sales department. And once in a while, they will come down and say, when they were upstairs, now they're working out of the office. They would come down and say, my client is doing this. Can we do something to the story on that? And it's usually if the day isn't busy, there's a way of working around looking for that hook, right? Um, yeah, that happens once in a while. Very, yeah. very rare. Things happen, and you go, "What the hell?" It's a, it's a nice story. Yeah, it, we're not going to make it as a TV commercial in that, you know. Uh, yeah. said, by the way, you know, uh, televisions around two for ninety nine. They're not going to say that in the actual news story, but occasionally you do. Again, that's because it's a small market. All right. Yeah. Major yeah. Market, the major markets don't deal with that, but I'm sure the major markets also get a lot more political pressure than we do. Yeah, I would imagine. Now, your career tracks the growth of Peterborough really over the last 40 years, 40 plus years. When you started, Peterborough had a population of about 60,000. 60, manufacturing was beginning to wane, but it was still king, like GE still employed thousands. 
Now Peterborough is in the midst of a high-tech renaissance, at least before the pandemic, and manufacturing jobs have really dropped off. How has the city changed for you? And how has the media landscape changed? Well, what's happened is when you get a place like Peterborough, and I came here from outside, I came from away, if you coin a phrase. From away. There's things that never took part in. They were a huge part of this community. The GE picnic every year up in Nichols Oval. They brought in a midway for the GE place because there are thousands and then thousands of spouses and kids. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all gone now. That's right. No longer, and that's, that's typical in a lot of places. Um, the big manufacturer would often would have a, a, a like a family day kind of thing. And that, that just, well, for starters, those businesses don't exist anymore. You know, people think, oh, we should bring a factory to town that, you know, employs like 3,000 people. No one does that anymore. No, yeah. no one has that sort of worker basis anymore. It just doesn't happen. People have told me that GE used to run a bus to pick up workers around Peterborough. <laughs> there were so yeah, many of them. Had, well, actually, yes, they had to. When the workers go to a GE, there are a couple plants right close to each other there. There's General Electric, and then you go down Park Street was uh, De Laval, which made uh, milking equipment. And there's another one. Anyway, they had to sort of, they all had their, their like their 5 o'clock whistle. It was staggered them. Like, your whistle was actually at 4.50, and your whistle was at 5.10, because if they all went off at 5 o'clock, you couldn't move in the Monaghan, on, on Park Street or Monaghan Road. There's just too much traffic. Wow. <laughs> You didn't get out. Now that's um, that. That I learned from my, my uh, adoption of uh, local history, uh, which I really, really enjoy. But that's, yes. that's yeah, these these guys they did that just because sure. they, they didn't get out. Oh yeah, what once you start? And I did a, I did a, a four part series two years ago on uh, General Electric. Uh, right. So the good, the bad, the ugly. Okay, about about the about the history of coming the history of coming to Peterborough. And there's a number of companies like that, like General Electric, like Ethicon, I believe, or Johnson Johnson, and Steelwright. Having roots. When, and it happens like every 30 or 40 years, they, the manufacturer is, is, they're selling their product across the country. And the mayors of all the towns come and say, look, we're buying your stuff. You should build a plant here to make it. And that's how these places came to, came to town. It was just right. because we, to satisfy that demand from the politicians, municipal, provincial, and federal, that you should still the plan to bring some jobs to town. They, and that was a usual, a very, very, very common thing. Over in Cabin Monaghan, it wasn't called, it was a different writing in, but the MPP was uh, John Foote, who won a Victoria Cross at Yep, but was then the MP. And they were after him to bring a factory to that area. And he said, oh, please, I can't get a factory. I'll go to prison. So that's on Millbrook. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Around the same time, over in Lindsay, a lot of apparently a lot of people had seen all these 1950s melodramas about girls gone wild, right? Young women. So they, we need to have a prison for young women. We need to set the thing up so they, they're kept safe and re-educated. So they built the place, and it sat empty because there were no female in there, not enough to fill a prison anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. And then now, what it is, it's now the uh, provincial court building over there in Lindsay on, uh, Kent Street West. I was in, I was in a bunch of interviewing Justice Wheaton, who just become a judge. And I looked down in the middle, of, they have this picnic area in the middle of the building. And he said, that, that was the exercise yard. So the girls gone bad. And he went oh. over, they were actually having any girls gone bad. Interesting. Now, when we look to the future, say in five or ten years, what do you see happening in the media, uh, field, you know, the media landscape here in Peterborough? I mean, 
Will there be local news coverage? And if so, who will do it and on what platforms? I think you're going to see a lot more expansion of into online. Right. Um, I'm sure you'll see some television. There's always going to be a need for local news. But you're also going to see a lot of people, like even Peterborough now, and I, I should know the name of it, but someone just started an online newspaper. Peterborough Current? Oh, Peterborough Current. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 They're, just, they're, just, they're seeing a need that's not being met, and they're, they're doing it, which I think, is, I think is amazing. The more voices you have, well, the more voices you have that are legitimate, right? Not, because I can't say exactly what they're doing because I don't know for sure, but there's certain things you have to do. Definitely you're right. You have to your sources. You have to, you know, do the work. You just sure. can't go up there and talk about what you, which is yep. which okay in a certain spot. You gotta, you know, it doesn't have to be brilliant, but it's got to be right. Yeah. Now, when you look, when you put on, let's say, your, your future focus lenses, uh, we look forward. What will historians say in 2040 or 2050 be saying about the influence of the internet on news media during the? Well, I, I think- your career. Well, keep in mind, it, it came in when, you know, a long, my career has been there for a long time before I actually came in. So it's a fairly recent phenomenon. I think that, like the time for now, would be a completely different landscape in the fact that the, the well, even, internet's even changed now. Internet and technology. Because you recall, you recall, I'm sure, like I do, when PCs first came out, okay? Oh, yes. Everyone knew exactly how much RAM they had. They knew exactly what your clock speed was. Yeah. Uh, and did you look at the ads? And you don't think now you walk into the store and you go, I want that one. If, if yeah. they come on a like, like uh, Bill Bryson was talking about people that can brag about the RAM and this sort of thing. But he said, You don't go to the other your kitchen and go, Hey, that's a nice fridge. How does it cool? Like, what's the BTUs on that baby? Because yeah. it's an appliance. Same with the computers, it's now an appliance. So that tech interest, I think, is gone. It's just, you know, what can it do? What can it do for me? How can I make my job easier? How can I make this? How can I tell stories through this? How can I tell my story through this? So I think the actual tech stuff is of less importance than the the idea that we've got this amazing tool that we're still learning continues to um, continues to evolve. I, I can imagine even several years from now when they talk about the fact that the president has been banned from social media. I'm sure the people will go, yes, and? They didn't right. realize deal it was at that time. But that's, yes, that's it was the only game in town. Now, when you look around the media these days and look back over your career, who in the media, really on any platform and in any role, do you look up to or who was something of a role model? Like starting out, did you have role models? And who do you admire today? And that can be local, national, whatever. I, I met a man a couple of years ago. He's a shooter, a photographer for uh, CTV Toronto. His name is Tom Ruppel. And he's this little nuggety fellow, but absolutely fearless, absolutely take charge. We were at a, because I'm, I'm by nature a little withdrawn, a little shy. We were at Liberty Village, Toronto. The mm-hmm. Princess Margaret and going to meet all these, um, all the clients, you know, some of the disabled people. And so we get there to where we're supposed to stand. And uh, Tommy goes, this isn't right. This is moving people around to get a better shot, right? right. And next, we, okay, next we need to go over here. And they had to sort of run around this, over this freshly sodded thing. Come on, let's go to the next site. site. And once you find it, what, what, you, when you get into that level of the media, that level of event, 
there are endless people telling you where to go and where not to go. So we're being chased by like CBP services, the OPP, British Secret Service, and not the RCP, because we're, we're, we're doing it where you say, ah, oh, them, I'll go over there. You've got to get the shot. If you don't get the shot, you waste your time. So we got the shot. And the, the, the media, the job that I've done, it's a terrible job, we find, for people telling you how to do it. Right. Okay? You should do that. You should talk to this guy. You didn't do that right. You didn't talk to the wrong guy. You should have went over there. Which, you know, no one else tells you, your mechanic, you're not doing that right. Turn it that way. Well, right. maybe they do. But it, yeah. it's a terrible job because it looks simple and it's, it, it's very complex. All right. Right. But it's basic. It's simple. Here it is. Here's the story. Here's what happened. But all the nuances you got to completely got to think of, it just gets a little annoying after a while. Just because the other thing is, is that people, everyone's got a good idea for a story. Here's a story on this. This guy does this and that. And this. Okay, will you go on camera and talk about it? Oh, I'm not talking about it. Oh, go talk to somebody else. <laughs> and that's the, again, that's, that is the source that is being in a small market. I'm sure yeah. you don't get that. You might get the big market. I don't think so. I don't think anybody's calling up, like, you know, Wendy Mesley or um, Sean O'Shea and saying, you need to talk to this guy. Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe Sean O'Shea. He's the global guy that does the uh, consumers thing. I'm sure he gets told all the time what to do. Now, the name of uh, this little program was called Pints and Politics. Now, back in the pre-pandemic era, on bleak winter Friday afternoon, say around happy hour, you and I might have bumped into each other, a local, local watering hole like the Garnet, and with pint in hand, I might have posed a few rambling questions that uh, really you can only uh, ask in the friendly atmosphere of a neighborhood pub. So... These aren't the sort of well-designed research questions that, uh, you know, I could score academic points with in a classroom with a professor. These are the sorts of questions that kindred spirits put out on the table to enjoy a bit of ranting. So uh, my first questions in this virtual pub might be, Steve, you're in the news business or you were in the news business. What's going on in U.S. politics these days and what do you think is going to happen? And given the influence of U.S. politics have in Canada, my next question might be, and how will this defeat of Trump play out in Canada? You know, he's got his fans up here, you know. <laughs> it's absolutely, you know, and I've, I've said it over the last couple of weeks, you know, no matter how awkward this pandemic is with the restrictions and all these things, at least we're not down south, where they have no control over the pandemic at all. Plus, they all got guns, right? The issue down, I think we have a different relationship between the media and the public at large that we do down the states, which a lot of the stuff Mr. Trump did himself, talking about the media is the enemy. And so people that would believe anything he said automatically adopted, okay, the media is the enemy, which makes it hard to get stories out. Makes right. it hard. If you go do your cross your T's, dot your I's, get your facts right, and put that out there, there'll be a large number of people that say, oh, why should we believe him? Be part of the media. Fake news. As a, as a Canadian, recognize the, the attraction. And they said, well, he's not a politician. He's a businessman. Yeah, but you, you want to be the president of the state, you got to act presidential, right? You can't just, you know, the, the, the classic one that you always hear from conservative politicians of all types, oh, I'm going to run this country, this province, the city, like a business. Was that just a, an unattainable dream? Right. You got, I'm sorry, you know, if you got a line of product that's not selling, that's not making the money you want, you can just get rid of it. Can you right. do that with the state? You do that with, uh, with the homeowner. I'm sorry, you're not working. We're just going to get rid of you. You can't do that. You've got to deal with them. Right. And you can't just sort of assume the lost leader will sell them off cheap. No, you've got to find some way of dealing with them. 
And in, in your job, I mean, in your career, if I'm understanding you correctly, you, you were never told, well, don't cover that union story or don't cover that protest, you know, our advertisers will be upset. If you got the idea there was a good story somewhere, you were okay to go out and shoot it. Is that correct? Pretty much. The only thing that we we were not were told not to cover was if someone had sprayed anti-Semitic or violent or um, anti-graffiti. Oh, right. right. We did not shoot that. because. It was ah, okay. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that because both of us can think of locales in Peterborough where you can go see stuff sprayed on walls, under bridges, etc. Interesting. Themselves want their message out there. Now, this is another pub question, if you will. Given the, the public debate about the, the Capitol riot of January 6th and, well, other issues related to Donald Trump that is raging now on social media, what can be done to improve the quality of this so-called debate? It seems that we're far better these days at yelling at each other, gaslighting uh, each other and mockery than we are at listening, understanding, and thinking for ourselves. So I, I guess it comes down to, is social media a waste of time for those that are struggling to understand politics? Uh, and if so, uh, how can we use social, how can we improve our use of social media? Our, our sanctions? Yeah. And, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the, the, the politics is the one, especially American politics, is the one that's really brought, you know, brought this out. But there's all kinds of things that need to be discussed that need to be discussed in a, a calm, rational manner. The environment, okay? You try to talk about the environment, and then people say, oh, you know, it, 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 it's all uh, smoke and mirrors. It, there's not actually a problem. Again, getting back to social issues, the homeless, the marginalized. How can you, how can we have a discussion on that with those people falling back on, well, they're just welfare bums anyway, who cares? Because we need to have that discussion. And you're right, it's when the so often the voice that gets heard is the one that shouts loud enough. Yeah. Now, another sort of, on this theme of pub questions, another question I might put to you would be something like this. Like, now you've covered a few stories that involve police here in Peterborough. Now, when we look back at what went down during the January 6th uh, riot in, in Washington, what happened to their policing? Like, why did the rioters have such easy access, accessing what is, uh, you know, the principal shrine of American democracy? Like, did jurisdictional disputes have anything to do with it? Oh, no. sure. They're also exploring now the number of officers that were supporters, Right. Uh, well, yeah, and the number of officers who did very heroic things. Like I was just reading on Twitter, was it yesterday, about an officer who who took a group of protesters. He was alone. He's dealing with this big crowd of protesters, and they were looking for the Senate chamber, and he, of course, he knows the building. He led them on a wild goose chase that could have saved some lives. I think what you're seeing there is the public, I don't know if polarization is the right word or not, Keep in mind that I've got uh, several friends who are in law enforcement, and they are quick to point out, okay, you really can't compare Canada with the U.S. Okay, it's two, yes. two different philosophies of policing, uh, especially when you're dealing with large metropolitan police forces, you know, like Los Angeles. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of officers, billions of dollars in, in, uh, in resources. So you really can't compare the two. I think also you're looking at just the difference between the national way of thinking. Now, having said that, sometimes our police forces don't do what they're supposed to do. They are not 
you're accustomed to do this and you're not doing it. That happens everywhere. I'm just saying it's not nearly as rapid here as it is down south. But you still have, to, you know, keep the lines of communication open. This isn't working. We need to fix this. One of the issues is, like, look at the, um, well, the conflict over defund the police, which I think is, is a, a really a bad choice of verbiage. Yes. No one's saying, yes. saying the money we spend on the police, we can be spent easier, especially in terms of, of social programs. You know, send in the, send in the social workers. They right? don't send in the, because, you know, like I said, the police officers I know do an extremely, extremely good job, but sometimes you know, somebody can do a little better. An example I had here was, was uh, in town here a couple months ago, I was in a cafe, and a person inside was livid that he was required to wear a mask. And he says, you can't, my religion forbids me from wearing a mask, you can't make me wear one. And he said, if you want to be in here, you got to wear a mask. And it escalated into a screaming match. He actually called, the, the guy actually called the police because he said, they'll back me up. Two officers came and did an exemplary job of taking him outside and explaining to him, okay, you've got two th- two issues here. The one is, as a business, they require you to wear a mask. Okay, that's what we're enforcing. The other thing about your religion forbids you from wearing a mask, well, then you should go all over to Water Street. There's all kinds of lawyers over there and hire one and, and, and take the city to court. That's there's two. It's not the same thing. That one is a police issue and one is it. So we've got to realize that sometimes when people get all hang up with this. And then there was a, we need a, so often we need a position where we can go, Ooh, and just take a second and think about it. The best case of that was a, many years ago, when they had a uh, terrorist bombing in Oklahoma City. What did you guys yes. have to, Oh, Timothy McRae, yeah. The fire chief come up to speak in Peterborough. It was a paid event to pay for the um, fire training center in Norway. Mm-hmm. And, and talk a very, very nice man, had that sort of that sort of gentle Oklahoma accent like James Garner had, right? And I asked him, I said, when, how did the alarm come in? How did you guys hear about this explosion? He says it didn't. He said, I was sitting there having lunch, and all the front windows in the station went, whoop, from a concussion. So he, he walked in, everybody calm, smoke was rising. And so everybody into, into the trucks and go, and they were just getting to the scene when a call came in, there's a second bomb, which is... Oh. The one, right? Set off the big bomb. All the fire guys come. They set off the anti-personnel mine, the one that's full of roofing nails and metal strap, and that'll cause all the damage. So he had to, and they had to wait till they cleared. They got that. That was no, that's not the case. And he said, if you can do that, if you in the middle of all the stuff, you are just uh going. This is having this happening. If you take five minutes, go okay. He says that's going to be the hardest five minutes of your life because you're going to see there. There's going to be people screaming. You, there's, you see stuff that you're trained to deal with, and you've got to take a minute and think about it. So as he did, he took the five minutes. Okay, what do we do first? Uh, a friend Dave Gillespie, who's a firefighter, actually teaches a course in people in those positions in firefighting and emergency services. Before you get there, what might I see? What might I be exposed to? How can I prepare myself so when right. I get in, I'm not struck? I can still perform my job. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And so I'm sure this very much happened at 9-11, the same thing. No, with January 6th, you know, it's hard. It's Well, it's so hard to sit in judgment of policing because there are jurisdictional issues. As you mentioned, you know, there are some Trump loyalists on board, and they were, because of poor planning, they were understaffed.
after ordering another round, I might ask you another question. Uh, I know you're interested in military history, and Trudeau, like his predecessor, makes all the right patriotic noises about supporting Canada's military, but his his actions reveal that our military is very much uh, still shortchanged. Now, it's easy to criticize the Liberals for their lack of substantial investment, but uh, is not the better question, what is Canada's military really for? If we had a clearer picture of what we want our military to do, we might be able to uh, invest in court, uh, accordingly. Will we get a white paper or a planning document that defines what our military should be doing for the next 10, 15 years? I think it's not, not a bad idea, given that the world has changed. Yeah. Uh, we can no longer keep on doing things that we did them. Uh, for example, look, at it was noted today that I think 10 years ago or 20 years ago, 20 years ago, there was a big snowstorm in Toronto. And that last one called the Army in. Uh, and they did a fine job doing what they did. And and so today we're looking at some long-term care places again and they're saying, bring the Army in to help. So right. we have to realize that this is a new role for the Army. And if we're going to continue to do this sort of thing, we need to, you know, make sure all the resources resources are in place to do this new sort of thing. And the, the, issue, always, the issue always is, of course, is that when you get talking about and it always ends up, seems we always end up talking about hardware. Do we need a new fighter aircraft to replace the F-18? Do we need uh, new naval vessels? Do we need a new heavy transport vehicle? Submarines. Uh, Submarines, exactly. Exactly. And look, look how well that turned out, right? Um, <laughs> how many of them are in dry dock? The situation is fraught with potholes and minefields, to use a military term. So I think you need to look at, okay, what are we doing? And given the fact that the world changes so often and so completely, what can we do to make the whole thing a little more flexible so that when different colored shit hits the fan, what, uh, how do we react? Now, we still, obviously, we still need to maintain our military. We have, the world's a horrible place, and we need to do our part in making it a little less horrible for some people. That means sending sending our men and women into a dangerous spot. If that's where we feel they need to go, then we'll have to do that. And if you do send them into these dangerous spots, they need to have everything they need to keep themselves safe, as you can, and to complete the mission. So we need to, like, we need to make sure that we know what we're doing, and we know what we can do, and what our obligations are, but like I said, the world has changed so much in that we don't can't say this is what's going to happen, then this will happen, then this will happen. It's a, a, a huge issue. It continues to be a huge issue, and of course, the cost is continues to go up. Cost yeah. is yeah. skyrocket for you know anything anymore. Now, in terms of domestic emergencies, I mean, what should they be prepared? What should the military be prepared to respond to? I mean, floods, pandemics, fires. You mentioned Mel Lastman's snowstorms 25 years ago. What in their training prepares them for these jobs? And really, should the military even be called in in these situations? They're, they're almost a default, right? Call in the army, which and they, they come and they do the absolute best job they can. But you're right, are they the right people for the job? But who else can you call on, literally a moment's notice, to mobilize enough people to uh, take care of this? Now, having said that, given enough time, uh, enough of lead time, we've seen it happen. One time there was a a bad windstorm of tornadoes, actually, down south. And I was going down to to an event down in the States. And coming up to Pennsylvania, 
And there's an endless, we've had an endless stream of hydro lineman trucks, dozens and dozens and dozens, and they've been down taking care, you know, doing restoration work down this part of the state. And so I said, with enough lead time, people will step up and say, yeah, we can go help do that. But the Army has an advantage. One of the things that the Army has the advantage of is that when you call in the Army, like Mel did, or they, like they did West with the, with the floods, the Army is self-sufficient. It comes in, they don't need accommodation. They don't need food. They don't even need uh, electricity because they bring their own uh, generation equipment. So it's very, they're very, very handy for that right. sort of thing. But you're right. Is, can it be trained? Because I think if you, on the broader picture, I mean, how much of this emergency they have to do with can be laid at climate change, right? Well, yes. That's, you know, it happens, happening more and more often. And we can't simply say that, oh, that's just the way it is. I think we have to, reflecting on that, is that this is going to happen. So we need to make sure that if we do send the Army in, like I said, they're equipped with the, the tools they need to get the job done. Now, because you've been in the public eye as a journalist, you have had to have clear boundaries around your own political beliefs, right? Uh, uh, now, while respecting those boundaries, and I acknowledge that you're, you're still, you're retired, but you're going to have an active retirement probably and going to be doing other things in the media – what do you see happening on the electoral front over the next few years in Ontario, here in Peterborough, federally? Any I, any predictions? See, I should know this because this is part of my job. When's the next municipal election? Is it two years? 2022. Okay. So about 22 months from now. What sort of things? Now, I have heard sort of, what's the word, Sato Vake voices have told me that there are a number of in currently on council will not be running and there are people who will tend to run to replace them. So there's there's some activity there. I know that it happens all the time. I know that there are there are people who are disappointed with the way things have gone under uh Maritarian. But there are people that felt the way that uh, they're under Mayor Major Bennett Major Mayor Bennett. So so I, I think you know popularity really doesn't come into it much. Mm-hmm. Now, provincially, I think we've been, in terms of the MPP, been well served by, by Dave Smith. The question now, of course, is that he may fall afoul of the same thing that took Jeff Leela. I mean, Jeff was a very popular MPP, but no one liked the Premier. So that's why, because of, of, of Premier. Could we see the same thing happening with Dave Smith? People don't like the way that, that Ford's doing things. Doug Ford. Uh, yep. take it out, will they take it out on Dave Smith? And, uh, and, uh, generally, I know a lot of people aren't happy with what the way that, because uh, they'll compare Miriam to, um, someone like Peter Adams. And Peter was extremely visible. Yes. You, you saw him all the time. He's everywhere doing everything. That's not Miriam that much. That simply may be, may be a reflection of the times, maybe a reflection of a different style. Now, now see, Miriam is also a cabinet minister where, um, Peter, Peter never was. So right. perhaps he had more time to do stuff in the writing. It, it all, I think it all comes down to, so often it comes down to the, uh, the leadership of the party. Now, 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 just today, yesterday, the UCP candidate in uh, one of the ones in Alberta, the Premier Kenny fired the guy. Yeah. People complained, he's never around. He's never doing what he wants to do. So he simply said, you're out. You're not, yeah. you're no longer. So, so obviously, I know sometimes things like will have an effect. If the people don't like you, if you're not doing your job, but the, yeah. the your supervisors will say, yeah, this isn't what. So yeah. there's no guarantee. Now, yeah. I, I know that Dave has been very active. He's, he's always very much in the public eye, as much as you can. It must yes. be it must be difficult if you've been brought up in that whole shaking babies and kissing hands thing, that you can't do that. That'll be the thing when the, for the election. The yes. election will well, in this situation, again, a whole different ballgame. How yep. we, often, we often at work, 
when I was working at uh, Global Peterborough in the newsroom, we would say, is there, is there any one thing, any single simple thing that hasn't changed because of COVID? And we just think everything has changed. Yes. Every single thing that used to happen no longer happens. Events and the way things were done and just... Yeah, oh, absolutely. Now, you're, of course, uh, touching on something I, I, I wanted to get to in our, our little virtual pub here is that uh, I'm sure if the pubs were open, this topic would be occupying hours and hours for all the all the people who love to rent is that what's your take on the strategies being employed by all levels of government on how to deal with the current pandemic i mean are the current strategies the best ones how could they be improved how could communication from government be improved and what is the role of media organizations in the deployment of these strategies the the one that a lot of us are concerned about, how do you deal with the anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers for whom science apparently doesn't apply? <laughs> it's huge. I think what you have to do is look at numbers, okay? In terms of the population of the province, what percentage of them are anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers? And this has made much more difficult with social media because they're everywhere. But how many of them are there? How much time and energy do we devote in sort of dealing with people who obviously are not going to change their mind about what they want. Well, what I'd like to see them do, the first thing, first thing I, I was disappointed that they didn't bring in uh, sick, uh, sick time. Because time and again, nothing is outbreaks is uh, the NCC and in companies, manufacturers. If someone can't afford to stay home because they're sick, they go to work yes. and they spread it. I think if you brought that in, they just, you'd see an immediate dropping of numbers. I'd like to think you would. And and everyone likes the big the big soft target, right? Like they now say it is the numbers of Canadians going south. Well is that the problem? Is that the problem with people going south and coming back? It looks like, you know, how dare you? Yeah, everyone can stand there and shake their finger and clutch their pearl saying they're not doing what they're supposed to do. But is everyone doing what they're supposed to do? Is everyone is everyone working as hard as they can to make sure this doesn't happen? This doesn't spread? And it's just it's it's disheartening. Disheartening and we can talk about all the analogies you want about, well, people had it worse during this time or that time. You just simply can't go and do a pub, which is true. But it's, people have, you have to, I'm not a big fan of this thing, you know, suck it up. But sometimes you have to suck it up and deal and put up with it so it feels better. And only if, if you only, everyone does their bit and wears your mask and washes your hands. That does yep. make a huge thing. And, and you know, adding energy over people going to Florida, uh, you have so much energy left, and that's, is that a good way of spending it? Yes, it's interesting. Yeah. In dealing with the anti-mask and anti-vax people, am I hearing you correctly? And you're saying that uh, they're really quite a small proportion of the population and don't get our uh, knickers in a knot over it? I, I, think, I, I think so. My thinking is that the numbers – we see are, I mean, there's a, there's a paper, there's a picture online for the examiner about a guy about protesting the, the, the lockdowns and he's by himself. And the Lansdowns do with the sign, yeah. which is good. I mean, you express yourself. Yeah. But I don't know whether or not that's the issue because the internet has also given people a huge uh, access to huge amounts of information and everybody's an expert, right? Yeah. Like, it's like a friend of mine talking about um, the insurrection in Washington. And he said the Capitol was besieged by, you know, thousands of uh, U.S. constitutional experts. <laughs> oh, so that true. Happens, that happens all the time. One of the, one of the issues with, um, with education is, as my father said, my father was a longtime uh, board member. He actually, actually, he was, in, this was years ago, he was the chairman of our local high school board when each 
high school heads on board. And then oh. they went to a countywide system. Yeah, this is down in Niagara, right, where you grew up? Well, East Ontario, up in Kingston Way. Oh, I went to school in that. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. okay. You know, the, trouble, the trouble with education is, since everyone's gone to school, everyone's an expert. Right. <laughs> now, over the past year or so, winding down here to a last question, over the last uh, year or so, we've seen uh, floods, fires, now the pandemic. And all, and you've touched on this already. All these phenomena are arguably driven by the rapid changes that are happening in our climate. Uh, so people have no difficulty debating floods and fires and pandemics, but we're not so good at talking about climate change. What can traditional media organizations and content creators, well, like yourself, uh, do to strengthen the message on climate change and create some understanding and focus and hopefully, uh, Corrective action. Okay, one, one of the problems with a media generally is that we, um, is the news cycle. Oh, see, there you go right now. What, it's okay. As I'm getting older, my memory is going. Uh, <laughs> the, um, this, is this, she's Swedish? The young woman who's the sort of the voice. Yes, yes. Yeah. She's, she's um, sweet. Yeah. And she, she had a birthday and her right. picture is, yeah, who's that? Oh, right. Yeah. And that, and, and that all sort of just sort of went away when the COVID hit. And yes. so these things. Away, they're just not in the media's eye, right? And right. we don't do a very, we don't do a very good job of keeping up with things because the perception is the um, uh, oh, the public doesn't care anymore. Right. Well, you can argue that, can't you? That they they do care. They just that you want to make sure they see the, the bright new shiny thing that can yes. attract a lot. Short attention span. Yes. So I, I, I'm sure after this passes, I'm sure this will it will again come back because it's I don't know how you can deny it's happening. I know people say, yeah, well, this happens every couple thousand millennia anyway. Well, maybe, but what will we do about it? Right? We just simply can't, right. you know, can't go extinct like the dinosaurs did. Although who knows? Yeah. I'm sure they didn't want to go extinct. I'm sure they had big plans to evolve. Yeah. Now, Steve, I've got one last question for you, and I don't know if it's a fair question or not. You tell me. But uh, what's what's coming up next for you? What are you thinking of? Because you know, I don't see you retiring to a bridge club. No, no, no knock against the game of bridge, but the uh, well, lovely people. No, I've got the, the one advantage I have now that I didn't have when I was working in, in the media is now I can sign petitions. Ah. Okay. Because that, that that just you don't do that because that means you're taking a side. I can sign petitions. I could if I wanted to write letters to the editor if I wanted to. <laughs> Yeah, right. Don't do that. I have no idea. But no, I've got a whole bunch of projects. I, and my other um, interests and in my history and my, my model building. And I'm actually one of the things I am working on is a, a book, a history of Czech television. I've never been done. And wow. I've got I've got lots of resources. I got tons of pictures. Right. Uh, I Graham Hart did anniversary programs on the 25th anniversary of Czech, the 50th and 60th. So I've got access to those. You talked about all the old timers who are longer with us. So we haven't lost that. What I am noticing is that there's a, a couple of gaps in our history that I need to sort of fill some blanks in. So there's some the, the, not so much technical stuff, but just the way of the TV works and that we, we did this. How do we get our programming? How did this change? How did we suddenly decide that we need to do this instead of doing this in terms of broadcast? How did we, I, I remember distinctly when the satellite TV came in, there was a little... A little, not the big, not the big, big desk, the little ones you still see. Those are referred to in, in, in conventional television as, uh, death stars because they're <laughs> 
that would be the end of local television because you would just dial up and watch news from anywhere. But we discovered fairly quickly, and we've been very, very rapid on this, and this, if you're going to go local and you should go local, go hyper-local because that news can't come from anywhere else. Right. You cannot get it anywhere except from here. Right. So true. Steve, thanks so much for for joining me uh, for this discussion. Fascinating stories. You've been listening to Pints and Politics. We post on Twitter at Bill Temp and on our Facebook page, Pints and Politics Podcast. We're also on iTunes and Stitcher. Until next week, this is Bill Templeman. 